Thank you, Todd. Hey, good morning. So my name is Ross. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, if you're visiting, I'll add my welcome to Todd's. We're glad you're here and don't think you're here by accident in any way. And so uh, we are in a series in the, in the book of Romans. And so this morning we are in Romans chapter 11. And I'll, I'll see if I can bridge into Romans chapter 11 by telling you. So, you know, Fritz was just up here a minute ago and he said that his first mission trip was to uh, Italy and he's been paying for it ever since. Do you remember? Were you here? Okay. Well, so actually, I'll tell you a funnier thing. So, uh, the, the thing that I remember, so I, Fritz and I actually went uh, on this mission trip together. We went to go teach um, a, a weekend, two weekend Bible conferences on, on the weekends. And this, I, I, I chalked this up into the category of one of the few privileges I have of being the senior pastor. And that is this. Um, in this Bible conference, we were taking turns. I think we were teaching the life of Jacob or something like the life of Jacob. And in the schedule, uh, we taught, oh, I think, a couple of times on maybe Friday night, a couple of times on Saturday, Sunday morning, and then Sunday after lunch. Well, Fritz got the Sunday after lunch slot, but let me tell you how it worked out. So this is how they, they have church there. Um, this is on the east coast of of Italy. It's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. It's a picture, uh, it's postcard beautiful. And then you have all of these Italians and what they do when they do an Italian potluck, it is not like we do potluck. Okay. We swing by the grocery store, we grab some chicken and that's what we do. No, no, no. These women are serious about it. And they made the most incredible three, four, four or five course Italian meal. So there's all these carbs and all this bread. And, and I mean, you were stuffed at the end, not to mention they're Italians, okay? And, and you, you, just have, you just have wine with us. So all this wine. So wine and carbs and bread and dessert and then Fritz. <laughs> and I don't care if it's Chuck Swindoll. Isn't that, you, you're, you're already, you're in the hole right there, all right? <laughs> Um, so that's one of the things I remember, we, not knowing exactly, we did, in fact, we did the schedule before we knew exactly how it was going to turn out, but I realized, man, that was genius. Thank you, Lord, that that wasn't me. Um, and then my bridge is that however difficult that was for Fritz, um, on that, uh, Italian afternoon, um, that's kind of the way I feel coming into Romans 11. Like Romans 11 is one of these that the preacher inherently starts off in a hole. And, and I'll tell you how you know this. Because, I mean, unless you grew up in, you know, hardcore Bible church, there's a good chance you've never really heard a sermon on Romans chapter 11. In fact, I was talking to Robbie beforehand. He said, man, I got away with, you know, 35 years of ministry before I had to preach Romans 11. And so it's, it's one of those that um, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, it's, it's difficult because where we sit in the church, so we, we're in the church, we're here in North America, it's the 21st century. Um, we don't typically think in terms of Jews and everybody else or Jews and Gentiles. We, we sometimes will read the Old Testament and we read the Old Testament um, in some ways like it was written to us. Now, it's, it's absolutely written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It was um, written in and to a context of the Jewish people who were God's people. Now, that doesn't mean it's not for us. It's absolutely for us in so many and in every way. It's all profitable for us. But it wasn't written to us. And so one of the things that is difficult for us to remember is the place of the Jews in the divine plan of God. And, and part of it is, so I guess part of what I need to say also, is it is easy for us to hear what Paul will say in Romans chapter 11 and say, well, I don't know 
know what that really means for me. I mean, I, I, I don't know that that really matters for me. And, and so I want to argue that it does matter for you at the end. But, but in the meantime, here's what I want you to hear. That, that unless you see or catch the glimpse of or remind yourself of or maybe embrace for the very first time that God has a people in Israel. I mean, I'm not talking about physical Israel, but in, the, in, in Israel, in the, in the people of Israel, in, in, in the Jewish people. They, they are his chosen people. As a people, as a nation, no other people, no other nation in the history of the world, past, present, or future, will share that place that they have in God's eye. Now, that does not mean that we, primarily, majority, predominantly Gentiles sitting here in the church, the body of Christ, do not enjoy all of the blessings of the favor of God, because we absolutely do. But I want you to hear that you can't fully know who God is. You can't fully glimpse until you see um, that, that what he says to these people, even though so much of their history is obstinance and rebellion, and, and trying to find their own way to God, or turning to idolatry of the nations, or, or whatever it is, that these are the people for whom God said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Even if I send a nation like Assyria or Babylon against you, as part of the divine discipline that I prophesied and told you about, even though in my justice I may discipline you, I will never forsake you. You will never not be my people. And so this is who God is. And so for us, to hear Jesus' words to his disciples and then thus for every believer to come after the disciples, you and I, for you and I to hear the words of Jesus, the, the words of our God um, say, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. We, we ground that in. That, that's, that's not New, New Testament language. That's Old Testament God language that's now being given to us. And I want you to hear this morning that if, if we don't embrace, we don't see clearly what Paul is saying, that listen, what God is doing with the Jews, he, he is not finished yet. In fact, that everything that God's doing from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 all the way until the return of Christ where he um, takes his seat on the literal throne of David in Jerusalem, that in all of this, what God is doing, he's doing through the Jews. And that's what Paul is going to argue this morning. In fact, the way that I would say it, let me make a couple of these statements and then see if I can't tease this out then the rest of the, of the, of the time. Um, what God is doing to crush the head of the serpent from Genesis 3.15. So Genesis 3.15, they're in the garden. The serpent shows up. We find in Revelation 12, this serpent, this ancient serpent is Satan himself. So the serpent comes and he deceives the man and the woman. Sin enters the world and God then shows up and pronounces a curse. In fact, it's a curse that ends up being a, a promise for the world. And so he proclaims this to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or your seed and her offspring, her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
in, in, in a sense, what God announces to the serpent, the ancient serpent, we find out who is Satan. You think you've ruined my divine and perfect creation. You think you have taken that which I created in my own image, and you, you think you have stained it beyond repair, but I want you to know you have not that I am going to bring a redemption. And that redemption is going to come straight out of heaven, yet straight through the line of these sinful people. And what he announces, and Satan would have known full well what he was saying, and yet it takes the whole Bible for us to fully get the picture, is that my eternal son is going to enter this broken world. He's going to take on this humanity and he's going to be the one that redeems what was lost he will come and ransom what you have taken slavery and so what God is doing begins in Genesis 3.15 and you find that what he's going to do he's going to do through this seed that is to come and you think, oh, well, maybe it's Cain as he's born, the seed of Eve. And you find out it's not Cain and it's not Abel. He's going to come through the line of Seth and then through the line of Noah. And then ultimately you get to Genesis chapter 12. And God chooses that this seed, this seed of his people is going to come through a man named Abraham whom he called out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, who he will say about Abraham, you know, this Abraham who, who's going to be the, the father of many nations. It'll be through him that the offspring come. And yet you scratch your head because you know, well, Abraham's too old and so is his wife. But that's no problem for God. And it begins to become through Abraham and then through Isaac, not Ishmael, and Jacob, not Esau. And then Jacob has 12 sons and you think it's going to come through Joseph because he's the one that seemed to rise to the place of all height, but yet it's not through him. The surprise of Genesis is that it's going to come through Judah, that the line, the seed is going to come through Judah. Then you fast forward and you find that this seed of Judah is named David. God's going to renew this covenant and tell David that this seed is going to sit on a throne, an everlasting throne, forever. And in fact, that's how Paul opens up the letter to the Romans, reminding them that Jesus is the offspring. He's the seed, the son of David. And so what Paul's going to say is that what God is doing to crush the head of the serpent, to, to bring about redemption for the world he is doing through the Jews and he intends to use every single moment of time every moment of time that he has ordained past present and future to come to bring about this redemption and this story of redemption is going to take the whole bible to tell and so it's, we can sometimes think, oh, well, the, the whole history of Christianity exists in, in my time, in my place, in my church. And I want, want you to know that the way God sees it is there is a time to come. There is a future for his people. And Paul is going to explain to us what's going on in what appears to be the meantime. It, what appears to be that it seems as though Israel has been, has been set aside. The, the Gentiles have become the object of blessing. And so he's going to answer some questions. Has God forsaken Israel? He's going to say no. Has he rejected his people? No. Have they stumbled for the purpose of falling to where they can't get up? And Paul says, no. That's a narrow and short view of what God's doing. In fact, God loves his people. We should love his people. We should pray for his people. We should, as he says in the beginning of Romans 9, in the beginning of Romans 10, Pray for, uh, uh, allow this, um, this, this deepening burden for who God's people are. 
to drive us to a, to, to a prayer for their salvation because that is at the very heart of God. The God we worship, the God who saved us through his son. Okay, that's a super long introduction, but, but I want you to hear that this is what Paul's talking about. So, so look with me, let, let, let's walk through um, 11. What we're talking about here is he's gonna say, Israel's failure is not a complete failure. And Israel's failure is not a permanent failure. So the first 10 verses, it's not, their, their failure is not a complete failure. He says this in, in verse 1. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? If you were just reading along and you, you didn't know anything, you might think the end of 10 would lead you to believe Paul's going to say, Finally, he has. Because the end of chapter 10, he says, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And so you think the next thing to come is, so God says, my hands got tired. and got tired of waiting on you. So I decided to do something else. Paul says, no. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. And then he's going to offer up three sort of pieces of evidence to support this. And the first piece of evidence is himself, Paul himself. He says, no, he hasn't rejected his people. I'm one of his people. I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm, I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, look at me. I'm living proof. He hasn't rejected his people. I was one of those. I rejected him. I rejected his son. I rejected the Messiah that the Old Testament always prophesied to come. I rejected him, but he didn't reject me. And that's evidence one. Israel's failed, but they haven't completely failed. And I'm evidence of that. The second proof is going to give us a biblical proof. proof. So I call that the personal proof. This is the biblical proof. And he says in verse 2, God has not rejected his people for whom he foreknew. And, and what it means, maybe you'd say it this way, God's not cast away his people whom he marked out for his own. It's so long ago. It means we, we've talked about foreknowledge. We talked about it at the end of chapter 8. It means he, he knows them. He, he intimately knows them. He, he has an intimate relationship with them from beforehand. And so what Paul's arguing is, listen, God has a plan, and he's got a plan within a plan. And his plan will come to pass. And so his argument, he goes on and says, do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? how he appeals to God against Israel. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to take us back to 1 Kings 19. And to give you a little context so you know what he's talking about, his readers would have known because they went to Sunday school. But so we, um, so 1 Kings 19, uh, you write this down, comes after 1 Kings 18, okay? And 1 Kings 18 is when Elijah goes up to the top of Mount Carmel and he has the battle with the prophets of Baal. You know, and they, and they do this whole deal back and forth. And what, what he does is, he, you know, you remember he, he soaks the wood, you know, he drenches the, the, the firewood and then calls the fire down from heaven and the fire lights and heat. So, and he wins. You know, he's on top of the world, and he, and he wins there in, in 1 Kings 18. But, but then 1 Kings 19 shows up, and he got an email from um, Jezebel that says, I know who you are, and I'm going to kill you. And so he begins to run. He got scared. And it's this weird contrast. And interestingly enough, when he runs, he begins to run out of, the, the, the text is so clear, it charts his path. He begins to run out of the promised land in the reverse direction that the Israelites came into the promised land. And he finds himself, you know where he finds himself? At Mount Sinai. 
or Mount Horeb as it's called there. And he goes up to the top of the mountain and he begins to complain to God and he says to God, I, I guess I'm the only one left. Only one still loves you and reveres you, believes you. I guess I'm the only one. It's what Elijah says. So that's what Paul quotes. And he says, Lord, they've, they've uh, verse 3, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left and they seek my life. And I think of all the places. So what Paul's going to do is he's wanting to argue, listen, Israel has, has failed, but they're not a complete failure. And they're not a complete failure, not on their own doing, but they're not a complete failure because God has always kept a remnant. He's always ensured that there were a portion of his people that did have the faith of Abraham, that did believe him, that weren't trying to work for their righteousness, but that they were believing God for righteousness. They were believing God for salvation. And, and, and so what, what, what Paul is, is doing is I think of, of all the places that he could go in all the scriptures to talk about the remnant because the Old Testament is filled with pointing to this remnant over and over where it seems like the whole nation's gone crazy and left God. God always comes back and goes, yeah, but I have a remnant. I have people. I think Paul goes here because I think Paul identifies a little bit with Elijah. I think there's a sense in which Paul looks around at all his kinsmen, all his fellow Jews, and wonders, am I, am I the only one? Why won't they believe? Why are they still, to their detriment, refusing the gift of God and trying to earn the pleasure of God? Why would they do that? And so as God reminds Elijah, I think Paul's reminding himself, verse 4, but what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 men who will not seek to work their righteousness to get to me but who will trust me and believe me and walk in the faith of Abraham. And then so Paul says to his readers and to us in verse 5, so too at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace and that every generation, every generation, there's a remnant of believing Jews I mean, if you just think about it, I could go through the history. I don't have time to go through the history. But starting in the first century, let's just start in the first century, although you could go back really to the beginning. But starting in the first century, you can chart in every century up to now. Some major effort, every century some major campaign, some major effort, some um, planned, strategized annihilation of the Jewish people. The 20th century certainly saw it. If the Lord tarries, there is no doubt the 21st century will see it. And yet, through all these centuries, God has preserved his people. And not only has he preserved his people, he's saying, Paul is saying, there's a remnant. There's a remnant of those, there's a portion of those who believe. He says it's a remnant. There is a rem all, uh, so too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, they're chosen, and they're a remnant, and they're believing Jews, and there are in every century, and there are today. And yet, they're, they're not chosen, they're not believers because they're Jews. They're believers by grace who are Jewish that make up this remnant that God continues to preserve. 
in verse 7 through 10. Now he's going to speak prophetically. This is his third argument. What then, he says. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Now, this takes us back to the end of chapter 9. Remember, at the end of chapter 9, beginning of verse 30, he says, hey, here's the real tension. The Gentiles, which, by the way, um, I probably should have clarified this beforehand. Predominantly, by and large, you're Gentiles. You're, you're those people. I, I'm those people, okay? You're the Gentiles. And so what he says is, in, in chapter 9, verse 30, he says, well, these Gentiles who we weren't seeking righteousness, we, we actually got righteousness. Like, by God's Spirit, He came and opened our eyes and our hearts, and we heard the gospel of Jesus. And we weren't even looking for Him. And we believed, and we received righteousness. And yet, the Jewish people, His people, man, they'd been working the law. They'd been trying to do the law so that they could get to the righteousness. And yet, the end of them trying to attain the law was that they never could attain it, and they didn't get it. And his conclusion was because they, they were pursuing it by works, not by faith. And then so he says here in chapter 11, verse 7, he picks it back up. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, this righteousness by works. And then he says, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. They, they failed to obtain what they were seeking, so they were... They were hardened. This hardening of Israel, which we'll find out next week, it's a partial hardening, but this hardening conforms with how God has dealt with Israel in the past. In fact, Paul's already told us in chapter 9, verse 6, not all, that are, not all Israel is Israel. The... the the nation as a whole, the great majority, they, they live and stand in rebellion, and, and, and they have, even throughout the Old Testament. But there are those who, by grace, through faith, know the blessings of God. The hardening is God's divine surrender of a human being to go the way of their sin. And so, what Paul's going to do now in verses 8 and then in 9 and 10, he's going he's to bring two witnesses to show that this is what God is doing. In fact, this is what God was always doing. He prophesied. He knew that this was going to be. In verse 8, he says, as it is written, and so, what he's going to do is he's going to quote, he's going all the way back to Deuteronomy 29, but he's actually going to quote Deuteronomy 29 through the lens of Isaiah 29, because Isaiah is going to be looking at the same thing. And he says, God gave them a spirit of stupor or uh, slumber, a spirit that was, that was sleepy, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Now, in Deuteronomy 29, he is speaking about the Israelites who wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You remember this? They, they um, uh, send uh, 10 spies, 12 spies, 10 spies, I don't know, something. Well, I just lost my turn in, in Bible trivia. All right, so, but but regard 10 or 12, I can't remember, but there's only two good ones anyway, all right? So, um, um, but, but they send the spies, you know, to look into the promised land, and they come back and go, oh, no, they're giants. You know, I mean, we, we can't go in there. And, and, but you had two, you know, Joshua and Caleb, and they're like, no, we can't go in there. You know, we've got on our side. And, and they're like, shut up. And, um, and so God says, okay, fine. I'll let you wander in the wilderness. And I'll wait till you all die, and I'll let your kids go in. That's what God says. Now, it's interesting because in that, there's also grace. Because when they go into the land of Canaan, they're to wipe out the pagans. In fact, God had said to Abraham, they're going to go 
to, to Egypt till the sin of, the, of the, those that live in Canaan come to, their, to, to full measure. And I have to believe God had been telling those in Canaan, hey, listen, there's a day God's coming to get this land. Either You either join God or you're going to get wiped out by him. And so what God does is he, in the discipline of his people, he provides a grace for the Canaanites. Forty extra years to repent and turn to him. And in that, only one people group in all of Canaan did it. And so, so he gives them this uh, eye. So, so in Deuteronomy 29, where, where he'll say to this day, the Lord's not giving you a heart to understand or eyes to see or hear. This was part of the discipline. It's, it's the diagnosis of, of what was taking place. Isaiah picks it up and says, that not only was it a diagnosis, it's a discipline. But it won't last forever. In fact, the end of Isaiah 29, he goes on to say, in that day, there's a day coming, in that day that comes, the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. They're... It's not a spirit of death. They weren't put to death. They were just put to sleep. But there'll be a time of awakening, and it's going to come. And in the meantime, now he says, he quotes David. And in verse 9, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And probably a better word than forever there is the word continually. It's probably a better translation, continually. And he draws upon the psalm of David when David's on the run from his own people, his own brothers and his own uh, family and his own court, his own nation. They're seeking to destroy him and strip him of everything. And he says to God, this, this table of theirs, make it a snare. The very thing that ought to be a blessing to them, a, a place where the, where the altar is and where the sacrifices are made. Make that a snare for them. And in many ways, this thing, Paul's likening it to that which the Jews have looked forward to, the Messiah to come, the seed that was promised in Genesis 3.15 and then, and then made covenant uh, promise with, with Abraham in, in Genesis 12 and then with David, this Messiah they've been looking for and longing for. They rejected the, the table that was supposed to be a blessing. They've rejected it. They've scorned it. But their failure is not a complete failure. And he's going to go on to argue that their failure is not a permanent failure either. So, so look with me, and I'll see if I can't get through the rest of this section. I'm only going to go to, to, to verse 24. Um, but look at verse 11. He's going to give us a reason, the purpose of, of God, for the meantime, rejecting Israel. So he says this, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? So, follow with me what he's saying. Did they, so they stumbled and they fell. They stumbled over the stumbling stone and they fell. Paul's question is, was the purpose of their stumbling so that they would fall? And presumably not be able to get up. Did they stumble so they would fall? And Paul says, by no means. The purpose of their stumbling was not their falling, and then and, and their falling is not permanent. And then he says, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. I'm going, to give you, I'm going to see if I can work an example here, an illustration, and then come back to the illustration here in just a minute. One, you, you're the Gentiles. Remember this? You're those people. 
Salvation has come to you, come to us, who now make up the body of Christ. It has come to us through the trespass of the Jews, the the rejection of the Jews, the way they have worked for righteousness instead of received righteousness. But it has come to us for the purpose of making the Jews jealous. So, let me see if I can illustrate this. So, so imagine I had, um, when I was, uh, 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 say, say, 10 years old, I, I received uh, or, or I had in my possession this, this great treasure. And the treasure, let's call it a um, NFL football, signed by um, those forefathers of the Dallas Cowboys. You know, before they rejected and fired the king and moved into paganism. And so, you have Tom Landry and Roger Staubach and Ed Tall jones and he, and he writes Ed, and then Tall with the, you know, and Jones, and then you got Randy White, and he says, you know, under, in parentheses, the manster, and then you got, you know, Tony Dorsett and Robert Newhouse and Billy Joe Dupree. And, I mean, all these people, and they're all on there, and it's the 1977 team that won the Super Bowl and crushed the Orange Crush, Denver Broncos. And it's a treasure. It's a precious treasure. And I can't wait to give it to my son. And so when he turns 10, I give him this present, this treasure. I say, oh, Jay, here's the treasure of the football. And so he, then he takes it, and he's like, thanks, uh, thanks Dad. What are, uh, what are all the markings on it? I'm like, oh, those are the sacred names. <laughs> So he's like, all right, cool. Yeah, uh, thanks, Dad. That's awesome. And then he goes and he, and he puts it on top of his dresser in the midst of all the other junk on top of his dresser. And it just sits there for like months. And all of a sudden, his little sister comes by and she's standing at the doorway and she's just staring at that football. And I walk by and she says, Dad, can I play with the football? And I said, well, you know, it is your brother's, but yes, you can. <laughs> and so I give the football to Catherine, who's now sitting in Jay's room, enjoying the treasure of the football. And then Jay comes home from school and walks in his room and sees his little sister playing with his football. And then you know what happens next? Give it to me. That's mine. That's my football. And then he says, Dad. And I come in and I go, well, you, you didn't care about it. And so I gave it to her. He says, well, I do care about it now. And I want it more than anything. And she says, well, I want it. And then they fight over the football. Okay. So as to make Israel jealous. Because they set it on top of the dresser. They didn't, they didn't want it. They didn't care about it. So the Gentiles, we get it. We get the gospel. Not for ourselves, although we're the beneficiaries of it, but so we could ignite in them a jealousy and desire for what it was that was supposed to be theirs. See what I'm saying? This is what Paul's arguing. Now, he goes on to say, verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the, rejection, the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? But life from death. So I want to read it carefully, and I want, I want to make sure we know what Paul's not saying, okay? And I'll wrap this up. It's not that 
He's not saying the Jews lose so the Gentiles can win. That's not what he's saying. Look at verse 12 again. If their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more their inclusion? Same in verse 15. If if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, how much more their acceptance? So, on the one hand, their loss, temporary, provisionally set aside for a moment, their loss becomes our gain. But our gain is ultimately for their gain. What God is doing through the gospel in the world, this is primarily related to the Jews, not apart from the Jews. The Jews were meant to be the missionaries of the world. This is what Genesis 12 says. Abraham, the whole world's going to be blessed through your offspring. But they failed. But it's not going to be a permanent failure. And what happens is Jesus comes and fulfills the mission of Israel. Listen, you cannot this morning say, well, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't care about the Jews. Like a lot of people say, seated at the right hand of God right now, I want you to know who's there. It is the eternal, co-equal, sovereign, majestic, who was and is and is to come, son of the living God. And he is seated at the right hand of God in his glorified incarnation, in his glorified humanity, in his glorified as a glorified Jew. That's who's seated at the right hand of God. And we now as the church, we're the body of Christ during the time of the Gentiles, this riches for the Gentiles. The church has been commissioned as missionaries as the body of Christ. And, and, and Paul's point is that, that they were meant, that they, the Jews, God's people, were meant to receive what God gave them and then share it. They didn't receive it, and so we received it, we're sharing it, but how much more will it be enjoyed by all when they receive it? How much better in my house if Jay takes the football and goes, oh, I love this, I love this. Catherine, come play with me. Come enjoy this with me. How much better is that? Let me, let me wrap this up a couple of ways. All right, so let's say, so the Jews, they've not been permanently cast out. They've, they've been temporarily, maybe some ways to say it is set aside. His, God's plan of redemption through his people has now for this period, this time of the Gentiles, this time of the church, is coming through now the church. And we are the beneficiaries of the promises made to Israel. We have not replaced Israel. We are not spiritual Israel. We're the beneficiaries of promises made to Israel and promises that will be fulfilled to Israel. Currently, what he says, apart from the remnant, the believing Jews, 
There are Jews that are zealous, but they do not have knowledge. But that is not how it always will be. He'll go on to argue. When the blindness is lifted, when the temporary time of being set aside ends, when the Hebrew children of Abraham will be in their land under their own flag, exalting the Messiah who will reign as the King of kings and Lord of lords, when Jesus Christ is crowned and literally reigns on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem, and the whole world will come for a thousand years to bow before him. That is still to come. And the knowledge of God, the knowledge of his son Jesus will flood the earth. And the righteousness of God will overshadow everything. You know what what the Bible says? The curses will be lifted. No more sin, no more crime, no more, I mean, no more, there'll be sin, but no more crime, poverty, pollution, disease. Satan and his demons will be bound. It's Israel's future. It's the fulfillment of the covenant promises God made them. This is what they have to look forward to as a people. It is what we have to look forward to for God's people. When the cry of the earth is victory and abundance and blessing beyond our comprehension, has God rejected his people? No. Has he, has he, have they stumbled so that they fall? No. May such a thing never occur. He gives us these vine and branches and he says, listen, you were a wild, you Gentile, you were a wild shoot, you were just growing wild on the ground and you couldn't produce any fruit, is essentially what it's saying. You were useless. They were pruned off, they were cut off by discipline. You got grafted in, so now all of a sudden, you've got life, the life of the root flows through you. It's what it is to be in the church, the life of the root flows through you and you bear fruit. But you didn't bring anything to this. You're the full beneficiary of it. So don't be smug and don't be arrogant. They'll be grafted in again, not as wild branches, but as those that that have always belonged, always connected to the root. In verse 22, just look at this real quick. He he tells us to meditate. This is for you and I. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. The kindness of God is this. It's anything and everything God has done and will do to give us himself. And the ultimate expression of God's kindness is seen at the cross. And when we're told to continue in the kindness, it's, it's to continue and yeah, to, to, to trust him for all that you need, all you need today and all you need for eternity. And we stay in the kindness of God by believing he surrounds us and dwells us, upholds us, trusting that he's working all things for our good, believing that if he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And that's how you stay in God's kindness, believing, trusting. And here's the great news this morning. Hear me. No one, no one is out of reach of God's kindness. Oh, he desires to give to you himself. And he's made the way. He sent his son Jesus to live the life you were demanded to live. And we never could. And to die the death that you judiciously deserved. He became your substitute.
He took everything you are so that you could become everything He is. And you don't work to get that. You receive it by faith. Have you done that this morning? If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that as we hear your word, we would be rightly humbled. We would, we would find ourselves without an ounce of pride or smugness, reminded that grace is grace. And if it wasn't grace, we wouldn't have any hope. We hadn't been, haven't been grafted in. We weren't offered the, the, the gospel of your son Jesus to be received by faith because of anything that we are not because we deserved it, not, not because we were worthy, not because we were better than any. Father, we're just like, we're just like wild branches growing on the ground that in your grace you grafted into the root your son so we could have life and bear fruit. And Father, in your setting aside in this time of the Gentiles, this season of discipline, yet remnant. You've allowed us to be the great beneficiaries of the intimate forever covenant promises you've made to your people. And so in that, we get to become your people. You gave us the faith of, of your chosen one, Abraham. We, we're said to have the faith of Abraham to be children of Abraham, you did that in us, changing our very nature. Father, for anyone here this morning that has spent their life turning away from you or maybe scorning you or ignoring you or putting you off, Father, this morning, would you grab their attention and in your kindness Grant them faith to take hold of how you are giving yourself to them through your Son. We pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.